If you wouldn't mind this morning, if you physically are able, could you stand with me? We're going to read God's word and then pray and then we'll get into the message. We're going to to read out of Luke 23 and Matthew 26. So Adam mentioned as we approach Holy Week and and, um, I wanted to, just a a theme that God's put on my heart this morning and we're going to look at two different places. Uh, So Luke 23, first of all, uh, beginning in verse 13. Luke 23, 13. Pick it up with, Jesus uh, before Pontius Pilate. It says, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and he said to them, you brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion, but I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he has sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I'll have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, and the one they asked for, and he surrendered Jesus to their will. And then if you'll quickly turn over with me to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. This is, we're going to rewind just a bit before that, the, the first text we just read, and we're going to go to Jesus in Gethsemane, the garden on the Mount of Olives. Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your word is a double-edged sword, and it's, it penetrates, it's sharp, and it quickens. And Lord, this morning I ask that it would penetrate inside of us, Lord God. Lord, we don't just read these verses today just out of tradition, merely to because this is what we're supposed to do, Lord. But Lord, we ask this morning that they speak to us in a fresh way. I pray our eyes would be opened our spiritual eyes, that we'd have eyes that see and ears that hear. Lord, I pray our hearts would be the good soil that you ask them to be plowed and ready with depth, that your word could go deep within us today, Lord. Because, Lord, what we're going to talk about isn't a superficial feel-good, but it's something where we embrace a deep work of God. And I ask that you would do a deep work in God, in my life and in all my brothers and sisters. So minister today, Lord. And, Lord, I do pray thy will be done, Lord that your will would be done in every heart and life, and that the will of God would be something we would embrace with fresh vigor, fresh excitement, fresh renewal today. Lord, I thank you for your people. Bless each one now. Bless the classrooms. Thank you for each child and teacher. Bless them. And Lord, we do, as, as Christy said, we ask your blessing on Pastor and, and Julie and, and their family. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. I'm always blessed when... 
you know, you get a chance to, whether you're, you're listening or you're, you're going to speak, when God always confirms things. And, you know, I didn't talk to Lynn or any of the music, Tony or anyone. It just was neat to me, though, that I just, I highlighted these quick. Out of four songs, two of them talk about surrender. And one song says, give me wisdom to know just what to do. And while it doesn't say the will of God, it certainly alludes to it. And today we're going to talk about surrendering to the will of God. And that's just always neat to me that God speaks to us um, and confirms what he wants to say. But something I was thinking about when it comes to the will of God, I was thinking about on the internet, I'm sure most of us are on there some, um, and I was thinking, you know, the typical, the typical uh, homepage people have, uh, some website, right, yahoo.com, msn.com, whatever it may be. And I was thinking, you always get from time to time, these little listings, and you can, you can click in and find the best, right? Something that's the best for you. And I was thinking of ones I've seen over the years. I've seen the best restaurants to eat at, right? You want to go to the best restaurants? They'll tell you why these 10 or whatever are the best. They'll tell you the best theme parks to go to. Is it Great America? Is it the one in Ohio? Is it the one, you know, California, Florida? They'll tell you why you should go to which one. The best colleges to attend, right? College tuition, how much is it? Uh, how much your loan's going to be? What's the, gradu- what's the uh, graduation rate? But not only that, what's the, the rate of uh, grad- graduates being able to get a job right away? They'll, they'll tell you where the, your best chances are. Best car to drive. You want economy? You want good gas mileage? You want safety? What do you want? They'll tell you. Et cetera, et cetera. And then one I just recently saw were the best places to live. And by the way, I think it was Charlotte. Virginia was the number one city to live in. And they had all these, for all these, they had like 10 cities listed in every one of them. Average temperature, school system, property tax values, employment rate, etc. Right? You want to find the best place to live, they'll tell you. Right? They got everything for you. But there's one thing I've, I don't think I'll ever see on Yahoo or MSN or anything else listed as the best. And that is seeking, living, and abiding in the will of God. I don't think they're ever going to say that. I'm I'm doubtful that I'm ever going to see that on one of those websites. But today, while there are great places to live and there are great uh, places to work and colleges to attend, I wonder sometimes if we've gotten, even as Christians, to the point where we just look to lists like that rather than looking to the will of God for the choices of our lives, for the decisions that we make. How much do we more embrace the will of God? Because I hope this morning... No matter where you've ever been when you think about the will of God, right? Oh, that's right. We pray that in the Lord's Prayer, don't we? Thy will be done. I want us today to value afresh the will of God, the importance of the will of God in our lives, seeking it, finding it, and then really walking in it, walking in the will of God. I think there's just tremendous value. You know, someone once said, I love this, you may have heard something similar. I don't know who it was, but I remember hearing someone say, there is no better place to live, and then they didn't say Charlotte, Virginia, or they didn't say some other city. They said, then in the center of God's will. There's no better place to live. They weren't giving a, geogra- a, a, a place in geography, but they were giving a much more important. In fact, how great is it that if this is true, you've got the best place to live no matter where you physically are because you're walking in blessing. The center of God's will Well, when we think of the center of something, we often think of the phrase, right, coming from from darts or target practice or whatever, the bullseye, right? Aim right for the middle. And that's an interesting thing. And I was thinking about this. I think about when God told us through the word of God in Romans 3.23, a verse a lot of our kids have probably memorized and hopefully we've, we've heard before. Right, this verse we often use even to share with someone who doesn't know Christ. Romans 3.23, who knows it? For all have sinned and what? They fall short of the glory of God. Well, you know that last part, the first part we get, right? We sin and we think about we mess up, we do wrong, however you want to say it. But that last part is very revealing. We fall short of the glory of God. That actually comes from marksman type uh, vocabulary. It means we miss the mark. We fall short of the mark. Our arrow, if we're shooting arrows, doesn't quite get to the intended target. And I think so often we just define sin as just doing bad stuff. And certainly it includes that. 
But it's much more than that. It's when we don't get to where we're supposed to be. Okay? It's missing the mark. So sin, I hope this morning we can have maybe a fresh definition. It's not just that we morally fall short, we break the Ten Commandments or something like that. And we know we have, right? We know we have, whether it's verbally, emotionally, or physically, we've broken those. And they, and they stand and they confront us so that we know we're sinners and we need a Savior. But beyond that, I hope we also would see that if we're missing the mark of God's perfect bullseye, his perfect will, maybe we need to see sin also is just when we do what we want rather than what he wants. When we're just about our own self and agenda rather than the plan and purpose of God. That's missing the mark. That's just as much sin as stealing or cursing or whatever else. So, Romans 3, 11 and 12 says this. Romans 3, Paul, the apostle, was giving this real indictment of sinful mankind. Just in case we weren't clear that we're sinners, he was laying it out. But there's one particular verse. He, t- he has some very strong language in there about sin. But there's, w- there's one aspect that always grabs me. It's in verses 11 and 12. He says, in addition to all these bad things we do, he says, there is no one who seeks God for all have turned away. You know, I've often wondered if the heart of God is more broken over those who are indifferent to him and treat him like he's not there than it is over those who just outrightly rebel against him. Now, don't get me wrong. God certainly sees rebellion. He judged it. We know in the days of Noah, he judged it. But I sometimes wonder. You think about it. Think about it as a parent. Think about it as a a, a spouse or whatever. It's bad to to be treated wrongly and to have rebellion come your way. But sometimes it almost hurts more to be treated like you don't even exist. You're never sought. You're never come to for anything. Indifference fills the air, fills the relationship. I think sometimes that can be even worse. And that's a picture of us going our own way sometimes. Not that we're doing all kinds of criminal things, but sometimes we're going off like, man, this is, I got to do this, I got to do that, this is my thing, this is, you know, on and on. Isaiah 53 said it like this, we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way, our own way. See, there it doesn't say we cursed and did this and that, it says we just, we're about our own stuff. Hey, it's my day, this is my life, right? I'm going to do what I want. And that's a common emotion in the day we live in, right? Emotions are high. You know, I think Adam said it when he was praying before. Emotions are high. And I'm going to tell you, one of the reasons they're so high is because I don't think we've ever been to a pitch where people are so in tune only about their rights instead of their responsibilities. And when rights are just promoted, and believe me, I thank God for rights. I would never want us not to have civil rights and all these other things. But when all we do is focus on my rights, and that's a good picture for us as believers. Is it just about my rights? Hey, I got freedoms here. I got rights to do what I want to do. Where's God in that? Where's God in that, in that, in that mindset and that emotion? So let's take it further. Another verse your kids probably know, and hopefully you know. Romans 6.23, help me with this one. For the wages of is death, right? Wages of sin is death. Well, we know that sin in the garden brought physical death. We know it brings spiritual death. It even brings, I'd say, relational death. You know, when sin is persisted in, it will consume. It's like a little Pac-Man of old. It'll consume everything in its path. The wages of sin is death. So let's connect the dots. Each one going our own way. No one seeking God. That's sin, and sin leads to death. And that's really negative. So thankfully we're not going to end there. But there's good news because if that's true, if the wages of sin is death, then shouldn't the opposite be true? Shouldn't the opposite be true that not walking in sin, not walking in my own way, doing my own thing, must bring life? It must bring blessing. Because the wages of sin, selfishness brings death, but walking Godward, I like that word, it's a great direction to go. Walking Godward brings life 
and blessing. Jesus summed it up. John 10.10, he said, I've come that they may have life and have it full or abundantly. Okay? Now, context of John chapter 10, Jesus was given the whole analogy of the good shepherd and the sheep. And he talked about the assumption that his sheep hear his voice, that they heed his voice, right? And so, and that they know him. He said, my sheep know my voice. They know me, and I know them. He spoke of this amazing relationship we're going to talk more about. So in the context of that relationship of his sheep knowing his voice, following his voice, he says, I've come to give life. You're going to experience life. And life abundant. So, to sum up that, hopefully brief intro, is that I want to talk today about the, our pursuit and surrender to the will of God. To, to seeking God's way. To seeking God's plan and direction and not just being self-absorbed. By the way, I love this. In Romans 12, 2, we talk about the will of God. Paul gave us a nice little, a couple of adjectives about his will. He said, it is his good pleasing and perfect will. Anything, anything, any, anything offensive or bad in there that we should scrutinize? That, that we should be worried about? I don't know. Before we pursue his will, I need to know more. Now, Paul said it's good, it's pleasing, and it's perfect. Sounds pretty trustworthy to me. So the will of God, pursuing it and surrendering it to it. Now, I debated whether to go into detail. I'm not on this, but, but just... A couple of assumptions when I say the will of God. The will of God to me, I can break up in two really big categories, and I'm not going to go on a lot on this. But first of all would be, I think, just his obvious black and white revealed will that he gives to all of us, right? Love your neighbor, right? Um, do good and don't do evil, all right? There's actually times in the word of God where he literally says, for this is the will of God for you. It says, to be thankful in all things, right? I think that's Thessalonians. In all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. So there's all kinds of things that I would hope as believers we come to a point when it's about the will of God. I hope those are things we don't even need to pray about, right? Boy, Lord, I'm here to deposit a check. Would it be your will for me to rob this bank today? I know that's silly, but you see where I'm going with that. There should be some things I shouldn't even need to pray. Lord, what is your will in this? God's already spoken his will, and so we should know, be pretty clear. So there's the general will, but then we get into what I'll call more the specific will of God. Because while the general will is to all of us, do this, don't do that, whatever, then there's the specific will of God, right? And maybe some of us are in that boat today. You know, we're wondering, you know, what should I do after high school? You know, am I going to college, am I not? Am I going to... Am I going to learn a trade? Am I going to school? If I go to school, what school am I going to? Kind of like my, my best list before. And where am I going? And you know, and maybe MSN.com's best list will help you, but I hope along the way you'll seek God as well. Because I think he knows as much or more than they do. And he knows even if that, everything they say in there is accurate, it doesn't mean that that's the perfect fit for you. Right? About who should I marry? Should I get married? Who should I marry? Well, I think God has some general advice on that. Be equally yoked, right? Be, a, be, be, be equal in your faith. Share a faith, a love, and a passion for Jesus Christ. But beyond that, there's all kinds of specifics that we come into with that. Where should we live, right? Again, our best list will tell us about climate and temperature and employment rates. But does God have a Does that mean God is sending you there just because that best list said that? Or does he have a plan for you? where you're supposed to go. You know, I'll just say this. Some, my boy Maureen, how many years ago? Some 27 years ago, you know, God opened a door for us to go down to the border of Mexico and Laredo. And it was amazing to me, but we didn't get a whole lot of excitement from those around us when we, you know, prayed about it and decided to go. In fact, I had someone who knew the city we were going to tell us it was the armpit of the world. Not exactly, but probably what the tourist bureau down in Laredo wanted to be promoted. But you know what? It was the will of God for us. It was where we were supposed to be. In fact, during our 14 years stay there, I had different opportunities to leave there. But because we knew God had called us for, for some amount of season to be there, I immediately would say, you can stop. We're not going anywhere. I didn't even listen to hear where they were offering 
I knew we were supposed to be there. And I know I'm going contrary to every good tip on self-promotion and getting yourself the best opportunity. But we knew God had called us there for a season. And looking back, there's a lot of good reasons. A lot of them are back there of why we were there. But God has a specific will. You're not going to find it necessarily in Scripture. Go live in this place. Go to this school. Marry this person. But God will speak to you if you seek him and pursue him, the will of God. All right. So today, what I want to do is um, we're going to look at two individuals on the final day of Jesus' earthly life. They're very different individuals, but I think we learn a lot from both of them about this issue of the will of God. One of them may even surprise us because he's not a believer, but I think we learn through Pontius Pilate a lot about those things that influence our choices and those that don't, and then we're going to also look at the life or look at the Lord Jesus Christ as well. Now let's go quickly to Pilate. We're going to be back in Luke 23, but I will occasionally go to a different gospel, and you don't need to turn. If you want to write it down, feel free to. But back we read in Luke 23, beginning in verse 13, a little background on Pilate. Many of you have heard of him. He was the Roman governor of Judea from 26 AD to 36 AD under Emperor Tiberius, alias Caesar, right? And the Jewish leaders had brought Jesus to him. So I want you to scrutinize, how did he do with the will of God? And again, I'm firmly aware, Pilate was, to all knowledge we have, not a believer in Christ. He was not a follower of God, the one true God. But nonetheless, believer or unbeliever, God will often be drawing. God will be probing hearts, and we can learn a lot from what happens. So I want us to do a quick scan or kind of review of Pilate and the situation. Here's the leaders. They've brought Jesus right to Pilate, and they're saying, you got to deal with this guy, and we want him dealt with harshly, right? So Luke 23, and again, I'm just going to summarize, not necessarily read each of these word for word. In verse 14... Pilate told the people, I have examined him, and I find no basis for the charges. Okay? So the first thing we find out from Pilate is that, no, doing my normal review, and this is a brutal guy, he executed many people, he says, no, no basis here. He says, and then he finds out that uh, Jesus is a Galilean, or he's, he's lived in the Galilee area. He says, you know what, this is Herod's mess, and he sends him off to Herod. Okay? And we see in verse 15 that Herod also did the same. He examined him. Because Pilate tells us that Herod has found nothing in him either. So now Pilate and Herod have both examined Jesus and no basis for the charges against Jesus. By the way, we're also told an interesting note that that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. They'd prior been enemies. Always an interesting note on that. It's amazing sometimes how in common ground, the common ground that sometimes people feel who would otherwise have nothing to do with each other. So then in verse 16, Pilate, I'll put in quotation marks, volunteers to punish Jesus and then release him. This is, the, this is where we see the slippery slope with Pilate. Okay? Imagine in our court system today, this individual is 100% innocent but I'm going to go ahead and flog him and then release him. Now, clearly to me, this is Pilate trying to work out a compromise with the Jews, Jewish leaders. He's trying to say, look, I know you're angry. Remember, he's innocent. Two of us have found him completely innocent. But here's what. I'm going to flog him. Now, remember, flogging isn't three little noodles across the wrist. Flogging is a near-death, oftentimes a death experience. They are basically going to take Jesus to the brink. Of death. So when Pilate offers to flog Jesus, he's basically saying, I am going to destroy this guy, other than maybe leave a breath in him. Okay? So we see here Pilate. So again, remember, what are you doing as you scrutinize this? How is he doing with the will of God? Did, do you think Pilate prayed before he made that decision? Lord, should I have an innocent man flogged or not today? But he's, he offers that on the table. We continue. In verses 18 and 19, the crowd screams for Barabbas to be released. Now, Barabbas is the one who led an insurrection. He had murdered. By the way, he had probably 
to my knowledge, murdered some of the Romans. Okay, so if you're Pilate, you're thinking to yourself, do I really want this guy released? He's already done damage. He's already tried to, to get everyone incited. So Barabbas isn't just an innocent guy in the eyes of Pilate. And I'm sure Pilate has no sympathy for Barabbas. But the people scream out, Barabbas, Barabbas, not Jesus. Jesus needs to be crucified. Okay? Now I want to pause here because I think this is an interesting note when it comes to our seeking the will of God. See, I'm convinced of one thing. The will of God is so precious, it's so blessed, that the devil knows that, and it's amazing the pressure he'll apply to get us away. It's amazing the voices that will rise up against it. You know, my wife and I know this well. We know it well sometimes to, to try to turn toward the will of God the voices that will come from various directions to try to intimidate that. But I think we need to understand that. See, I don't, again, I'm not picturing Pilate as a believer necessarily trying to do the will of God, but I think we're going to find out as we go along this, this narrative, he doesn't want to do this. He is not for this decision to crucify Jesus. So even if it's just for whatever motive in Pilate, he doesn't want to do this. But the voices are loud, and they're getting louder, and they're applying the pressure Look, young people in here, but this isn't just for young people. I don't know why we think peer pressure is just for young people. Peer pressure is for adults too, okay? How many of us, don't raise your hands, have bitten into it at, work, at the workplace, okay? So this isn't just for young people. But the voices will get loud. When God has a calling, when God has a direction for your life, the voices the enemy will send will get loud and intimidating. Are you ready for that? Okay? Because they will come. The world, the flesh, and the devil are a formidable trio. So who will we follow? Pilate now has a decision. He knows what he should do, but he hears what they want, and it's getting tough. All right, fifth point. Now I'm, gonna, I'm just borrowing from Matthew because he gives us a little more insight. Matthew 27, 18, and 19, the next two points I'm going to make if you want to write those down. Matthew 27, 18, and 19. Here's an interesting note Pilate knew, just that we need to understand. Pilate, Matthew tells us, knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. Okay? He knew, he knew the, the motives of the leaders was horrible. You know, they knew, they knew Jesus was drawing disciples away. Right? Less people were attending synagogue. They were following Jesus. They were, he had multitudes following him. They're like, man, this guy's amazing. And they couldn't stand it. They couldn't stand it. Pilate knew that. So Pilate even has an insight, he has insight here. He knows, he knows what's going down here, okay? But even, even more convicting. This next one just always just blows me away. It says in verse Matthew 27, 19, that his wife, let me use some Facebook talk, his wife messaged him. He was on his little governor chair and bing, his, little, his, his, his uh, iPod went off and he saw a message from his wife, Okay? And it said this, Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Now, you're only left with one of two things when this happens, okay? Either Pilate has zero, zero respect for his wife or confidence in her, or this ought to make him shake, okay? Because there's nothing that tells us she consistently had weird dreams, pepperoni pizza dreams, or she had something spicy the night before. There's nothing that tells us that this was a thing. And, and think about this. Think about what she's saying. Look at every word in that text. It says, have nothing to do with him. That's harsh talk. That's not, try to treat him good, honey. I think he's a nice guy. No, have nothing to do with him. Like, get away from this now, Right? Like, if you knew your spouse was about being set up in a trap and was waiting for someone and, and they were going to harm them, you say, get out of there now, right? That's kind of, the, that's kind of the, the, the context here. Have nothing to do with him, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream. It tells me she had this dream, probably not last night. It's during the day. The woman is suffering from this. She didn't just have, oh, it was kind of an ugly dream. I'll take a few minutes to get over it. Oh, okay, what's going on today? She's suffering, ongoing suffering and agony in this woman's life 
because of this dream she had about a man Pilate has to make a decision about. I don't know about you, good time to listen to your wife. Really good time to listen to your wife, okay? And this, this really speaks to me of the role of the Holy Spirit when we're seeking the will of God. The Holy Spirit will bring the equivalent to putting our finger on this hot stove. Ah, okay, Lord, gotcha. Go away from this way, go this way, right? The Holy Spirit, it says, was brought to bring conviction, right? To convict us of guilt, to convict us to turn in different directions where the Lord has us. Oftentimes, even in the book of Acts, we say that they were going to go one place, and it says, nope, the Holy Spirit told us to go a different direction. Does that sound weird to us? That was in the book of Acts. He told them to go a different, don't go there, go there. But that's the role of the Holy Spirit. He's to lead us into all truth. As many as are the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God, Romans 8 tells us. So the Holy Spirit warns us, leads us, points us in different directions. Pilate's experiencing that through his wife. Let's go on. Now, interesting note, depending which gospel you read, it appears like Pilate makes a decision to crucify Jesus, then has him flogged, and then he, he dies, right? But if you look at John 19, and again, you don't, if you just want to write it and look at it later, we're actually told that Pilate goes ahead and flogs Jesus, and then they mock him and put all the, the crown of thorns and everything on his head and brings him one more time up before the people, before he makes his decision. So Pilate didn't just threaten to flog Jesus and release him. Now he's actually carried it out. After he knew about his wife's dream, despite knowing that the Jewish leaders are doing this out of self-interest, he has Jesus flogged, brutally beaten, mocked, humiliated. Okay? Think Pilate's consulted with the Lord at any step yet in this process? The Bible tells us, moving on, the crowd again rejects. They get more intense. They finally lay the final thing down that moves Pilate's heart, which is the equivalent of political pressure. They say, you know what? If you release this guy who's declared himself a king, we, you are no friend of Caesar because any other king is a threat to Caesar. In other words, we're narking to Caesar on you, Pilate. We will apply the pressure. We will go to the, vote, <laughs> to the voting booth and vote you out, basically. Not that they could do that, but you know what I mean. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the day we live in. We will protest. We will do this. We're going to make your life hell, Pilate. And at that, when Pilate hears that, the word of God says, in, back in Matthew, when Pilate saw he was getting nowhere, but then said an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands washed his hands in front of them. He said, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. This is what Paul the Apostle called worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is the kind when it's genuine, like David after he sinned with Bathsheba. Godly sorrow is that cut to the heart kind where we say, Lord, I have messed up against you. I have offended you. Forgive me, wash me, make me new. The Bible says that kind of repentance leads to life and salvation and blessing. But Paul says worldly sorrow is when we just hate our circumstance. I got caught. I'm in a messed up situation. Man, I resent that. I resent that I got caught. That's worldly sorrow. Do you see the difference? Godly sorrow is repentant toward God. Godly sor worldly sorrow just is mad about the circumstance. Pilate's mad, and so he does what only thing he knows to do, wash his hands of the situation. And he basically says to them, this is your problem now. You forced me to do this. Okay? And by the way, that's where the enemy likes to take peer pressure, to force us to do what we don't want to do. But I want to tell us something this morning. None of us are a puppet of peer pressure or the world or the devil. None of us have to do what it says. And I thank God that we have brothers and sisters across the world, in China, in Korea, and in, in, in Middle East countries that aren't bowing even before the threat of pain and hurt and misery. Stop worshiping. I will not. Don't you say anything. We're, we're doing something unethical here. Stop it. We have a voice. Young people, you have the ability to do what's right. You have the ability with God's help, with the power of the Holy Spirit, 
to say no what you need to say no to and to say yes what you need to say yes to. Adults, that's the same for us. We don't get out of this one. We have the same will. We have the same ability, but we need a whole lot of God. I'm not, I'm not here to beat up on Pilate. I can't imagine the pressure that was on this man. But the problem is there was no God in any of it. Now let's go to the final indictment on, on Pilate. The, the, the final, one of the most tragic verses in all of Scripture, back in Luke 23, it says this. Verse t- Luke 23, 24, and 25. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for. Now get the irony here, get the tragedy here. And he surrendered Jesus to who? To their will. To their will. Wow. What a statement. Where is thy will be done in any of that? No God's will. No, what is the will of God? What is the, God, what's your heart on this? You guys, here, have what you want. It's totally yours. I just want to point out this morning that when our will or the will of the crowd prevail, in essence, not only historically in this account, but spiritually, I think Jesus gets crucified every time. When our will reigns and when we consent to the will of the people, totally contrary to the will of God, it's like Jesus crucified all over again. And brethren, more, as important is the fact that when we do that, when we listen more to the crowd than we do to the Lord, when we listen to our own you know, yearnings and desires, but, by, by the way, let me just say this. My kids know this. They're going to cringe. But you know, there's, this, there's this very popular sentiment, and we see it in children's movies all the time, right? Follow your heart. Follow your heart. And, and I know there can be a good meaning to that. But you know what? We need to follow the heart of the Lord. And if his, if his love is completely winning your heart, then maybe follow your heart's okay because that means assumes you're following him. But can I say even sometimes our own hearts can be corrupt? Our own hearts, Jeremiah told us, can deceive us. We need to seek the Lord. I know there's a lot of nice-sounding little refrains out there, but we need the heart of God. We need the purpose and will of God. All right. History tells us I don't know all of its fact and what's legend, but history tells us that Pilate very likely took his own life, a miserable man. Some legends, if you will, have spoken that this man may have been obsessed with washing his hands for the rest, remainder of his short life after this happened. I pointed out in the beginning, the wages of sin is death. And when sin means following your own will or following the will of others instead of the will of God, it leads to destruction. But the will of God is blessed. Let's just take a few moments now to turn to Jesus. You guys know the account very well. Here's some things to, to really understand as we think about Jesus in the garden. You know, I thought, you know, I thought as Lynn led the song Victory in Jesus, you know, Gethsemane, in, a, in, a, in an ironic way, is an amazing victory. Because there's no cross, there's no empty tune without Gethsemane. You see, Jesus had to win in Gethsemane in order to win in the resurrection. Because the pressure was immense. The Bible tells us that he went to this place. Now, nothing's an accident in Scripture. First of all, Gethsemane literally means oil press. And it, what it means, and Gethsemane was a, was a ridge, it was a, it was a yard at the foot of the Mount of Olives. That's why, depending which gospel you read, you'll see he went to Gethsemane with his disciples or he went to the Mount of Olives. It's really one and the same because Gethsemane was a section of the Mount of Olives. But the word means oil press because that's where the olives got squeezed to get the oil. That's where Jesus majorly got put in the vice and had to make a decision about what he was going to do or not going to do. But can I tell us this morning, unless the olives get squeezed, there's no oil. The oil's the blessing. The oil's the outcome. Sometimes there needs to be pressure applied. Jesus is going to go through it. Some of you may be going through it right now. Maybe you're in your own Gethsemane this morning. But can I encourage you, don't bail out. Look above. Hold on to the Lord. If you're going through a personal Gethsemane, oil is going to flow eventually. Stay the course. Okay? The second thing is Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is a place Jesus went to often. And that's the point here. 
Jesus is at a place he knows well. And I don't mean the topography and the rocks and the mountain and all that. You know, Mount of Olives is, is, is where he taught often. Matthew 24, when they said, what are the signs of the ends of the times? He was on the Mount of Olives. Uh, you know, when he wept over Jerusalem, he was at the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is where he will ascend to the Father from. It's a place he knew well. He spent a lot of time there seeking the Father. Why is that relevant? Because when Jesus is brought to this moment of crisis, he's already got a track record here. He's got an established pattern to his life because this is a place where he's been intimate with his heavenly Father. And so the problem sometimes for us is if we haven't established that, we come to a point of crisis and we don't know what to do. And we look to friends and we look to family and that's okay. But brethren, when you're in a crisis, you need the counsel of the Almighty and you need the comfort of the Almighty. Human beings are there and they play their part but they can only take you so far. Jesus brought his disciples to a place they knew well and he knew well. And in fact, in Luke 22, it says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. So there it is. There's the pattern. And we'll, we'll keep this really short, but he says, according to Matthew 26, 38, he said, my soul is overwhelmed with intense sorrow to the point of death. Disciples, stay here and keep watch. Jesus was human, right? We know Jesus got thirsty. We know Jesus cried. We know Jesus got tired physically. He was human. And so when he said to his disciples, stay here and keep watch, Jesus is like us. He didn't want to be alone in this, right? Can you guys stay and pray? He knew the intensity was building. Now, what was it building to? Was it just the thought that he knew what the, the nails would feel like? Was it just the physical pain? Now, I think what's going down here is th this, you can connect the dots, at least from my perspective, this statement that my soul is overwhelmed, connect the dots to where Jesus eventually from the cross will say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is anticipating it. And why was he going to ask that question from the cross? Because we believe that the sin of the world came upon him. And the Father couldn't look on sin. And so there was a moment, really the first moment in their father-son relationship where there was broken fellowship. Jesus couldn't bear the thought of that having to, to play out. And so the intensity comes on him. The Bible tells us from Luke that he will end up sweating like drops of blood, falling to the ground. It tells us further in Matthew 26 that he, going a little farther, he falls on his face to the ground. That's how intense. Sweat with blood, his soul overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, and the man falls down onto the ground. But here's the key. In the midst of all this, three times he says, Father, if it is possible, he's human, if it's possible, may this cup pass that I need to drink of, this sacrifice I need to make, this bearing of the sin of the world. If it's possible, but, that's the best, that's the best B-U-T in the history of the English language, but not my will, but yours be done. Think if Jesus had applied Pilate's mindset. Think if it was just about, maybe the disciples would have said, Lord, let's get out of here. Are you kidding me? They're coming for you? Let's go. Jesus already knew Judas was betraying him. Judas is on the way. He's with the, coming with the soldiers. Maybe you would have said that to the disciples. Maybe they said, Lord, let's not pray. Let's get out of town. This can't happen to you. You're too good to have this happen to you. You're a king. You're a lord. I'm thankful. I don't know about you that Jesus said, but not my will, but yours be done. Now, we don't have word here that the disciples argued or persuaded Jesus, but we do know they fell asleep. They fell asleep on the job. You see, Jesus had to go through this really alone. He had to go through this alone. This wasn't something Peter or John could, could totally help him with. This was something he had to, but it was a surrender of his will. Not my will, but yours be done. Brethren, it's no accident that when he taught the disciples to pray, when they said, Jesus, teach us to pray, back in Matthew 6 and other places, it's no surprise, it's no accident 
that he said, pray thus, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, and your will be done. And what I want to encourage us with today, you see, that was a pattern in Jesus' life. Jesus, every day, not just every day, throughout the day, constantly made sure he was postured toward the Father. He had a posture. You say, what do you mean posture? And I'm not talking about like necessarily that you kneel or you don't kneel or you raise your hands or you don't raise your hands. I'm talking about a spiritual posture, a posture that aims our life Godward every day. You know, we, we encourage and challenge our kids. Guys, before you go to school, have you, have you prayed? Okay? I mean, we pray for them, but they need to pray for themselves. They need to seek, Lord, direct me today. Young people, do you just rush up, rush out the door, you know, shower, eat, and go? Or are you stopping to pause? Lord, how do you want to use me today? Lord, order my steps today. Lord, bless the work of my hands today. Lord, make a difference through me today. How about us adults? Are we pausing to posture ourselves Godward and say, Lord, have your way in me today. I'm going to my workplace. It's not going to be easy. I know the environment. I know what's going on. God, your will be done today through me. Use me somehow today for your purpose and glory. You know, Jesus, and I'll end with this. I know it's late, and I appreciate everyone's patience, but I, wanna, I, wanna, um, I want us to understand why Jesus was able to do this because it's the secret for us. You see, Jesus didn't just view prayer as asking for things. I mean, we should. We should petition God for our needs. Please don't hear that's bad. But Jesus viewed prayer way beyond that. Prayer was him and the Father becoming intimate. Think of what Jesus said along the way in his ministry. He said, whenever you hear me speak, you're hearing me speak what I heard my father speaking. Whatever you see me do, you see what I saw my father doing. I'm just doing what he does. I'm just speaking what he says. He said, I and the father are what? One. You say, well, is that somehow just all that deity stuff and trinity and whatever? I think it's way beyond that. They were that close. Isn't that what we husbands and wives should be? One? Right? It's possible. You're still two individuals. Jesus and the Father were separate. But they were one. One in heart. One in purpose. Aligned completely. That's what the Lord's calling us to. He wants prayer not just to be pray for this, 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 and this. I mean, do that. But he wants it to be an intimacy, a relationship builder, established relationship where you are so close. And keep in mind, when, when Jesus said, Father, I always need to point this out. You know, I'm, it, it's so important that we understand Jesus wasn't talking like we all somehow hear it put Father. It was Daddy, Abba. That's the, that's the spirit of that relationship. That's the spirit. And that's why when Jesus is in the garden and the, the olive press is being applied, he's got that relationship. Father, we've talked so much. I know you so well. I know you called me to this. Oh, this is hard. But your will be done. Because I know you and you're good. Because I love you and I want to honor you. Because we're one together. Because I love you and you love me. Boy, isn't it easier to do something when you're doing it out of love for someone who loves you back? Isn't it so much easier? And that's, guys, where we got to get to. And, and, and don't hear this as a guilt trip. You got to pray five hours every day for the next whatever. That's not what I'm saying today. But take the time. And, and listen, when, we have, when you have a devotional, I just really feel led to, to say this as well. Yes, read the scriptures. But, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this because I think we all need to hear this. I believe in the Western world, we are too just stuck on more knowledge. A lot of us know a lot of the Bible, guys. We know a lot. We know a lot, probably more than a lot of people preaching in, 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 in third world countries. But it's time to jump into it. And it's time, when you have your devotion, don't just get in the Word Get into his presence. Come into his presence. Don't just say, oh, okay, well, that was interesting. Say, Lord, what does this mean for me? Lord, 
how do you want to order my steps today? Lord, how do I walk this out? Talk to him about it. Let the word be interactive. Let the word speak to you and you speak to him. Listen for his voice. Brethren, he loves you. This isn't a guilt trip thing. This is a relationship. This is a relationship of love. This is where when the olive press comes, God's got oil and he wants to flow it out and bring blessing. Jesus said, and I'll end with this, he said, unless a kernel of wheat fall to the ground and die, it remains one single seed. See, that to me is a picture of when we just self-preserve and we just want our own happiness and we're reading all the best lists and we're going to do all the best things that other people have told us to do. We remain one seed. But he says, but if it dies, it multiplies. And seeds flow out and life flows out and harvest flows out when that happens. And that's where the Lord wants to bring us to. So this morning, this morning and Tony, if you just want to just want to play. We're not going to have a long time, but I, what I would say is this, and I'm going to ask leaders to be available to pray, but here's what I feel on my heart this morning more than coming for prayer. We're going to open the altar, and I want to encourage you just to come and seek him yourself this morning. I want to encourage you to come and kneel or stand or whatever you're comfortable, and you talk to him. You tap into him. Okay? If you have a huge need, by all means, we will lay hands on you and pray. But I think this morning is more about us pursuing him. Pursuing the will of God, surrendering to the will of God. Maybe there's someone this morning, and you know it's the day to surrender it. You've been battling, you've been fighting it, and the Lord this morning is saying, lay it down. Lay down your will, take mine up. Okay? There's blessing in the will of God. There is no better place to live than where? In the center of his will. It's the safest place. It's the most blessed place. Will it be hard at times? Yes. We just read that. But the Lord is there. His presence is there. So I'm going to pray, but I'm going to invite you to come if you feel so led to seek the Lord on your own or to ask for prayer if you need it.